guess what I want to say is I, I realize that I'm not the only one or we're not the only one that's, that's struggling right now, that has issues right now. Our, our faith family seems to be going through the ringer in many ways. But I think what we're experiencing, if I, if I could put a thumbnail on it or if I could try to label it, would be aftershocks um, or, or ripples. And, and we had... And we had a bomb drop on us on in June when our our the the pastor that we loved went to be with the Lord, and that 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 leveled our city, Calvary Chapel Columbus, in many ways. It just it just brought everything to the the, the dust of the earth, and and since then we've been attempting to rebuild. But in in that rebuilding and in that growth and in that there's, if, if that's the bomb, then there's, there's aftershocks. There's, if that's the earthquake, then there's, you know, the aftershocks. If, if that's the, the, the rock dropping in the middle of the water, then there's ripples that we are experiencing. And we have, like I said last week, we have a very real enemy that would want to thwart anything that we do. We, and he would prefer that we would just stay the dust of the earth. And he would prefer that we wouldn't grow and, and rise out of this. Um, and so I, I was think, as I was thinking about that, I, I thought of Nehemiah and how what we just read on Sunday, the, they're taken off into captivity, the city is leveled. Seven years go by and Nehemiah and Ezra are like, God puts it in their heart to rebuild, to head home, to, to start again. And so Nehemiah especially, he's rebuilding the wall around the city. And as he does, what does he have? He has Sanballat and Tobiah. You know, look at that wall. That's never going to build. That's never going to, that won't even hold a fox, they say. You know, and, and there's constant, the enemy is constantly throwing darts at Nehemiah while they try to rebuild. And, and, and uh, there's just... Being your pastor, I know. I think I know of almost all the situations, at least that you've shared, and maybe there's others as well. That it's just my heart breaks for our church in so many ways that um, that we have to walk through these things. But as we just sang, God is sovereign over these things. He understands. He knows. He hides us in the in the shadow of his wing he he holds us upright and we can say yes it's hard yes it's painful yes it hurts we're still we're still grieving and healing from from the initial bomb drop but we can say god you're in control and you reign so it is well it is well we'll we'll trust in you we'll we'll press on and we will continue and we won't let the sandbalots and the tobias knock us down we will continue to press on and build for and build and and grow in him and so uh that's just i don't know if that's just for my heart but maybe for yours as well but uh we will press on okay um and um uh, so we want to keep praying for all of us and god will grow us together in this and god will grow us up in this and we will become greater for him so uh let's go to our god let's pray i thank you lord that we can come to you in prayer that through the blood of Jesus, we can stand before you, Lord, and present our requests to you. And your word would say that the, the peace of God, which surpasses understanding, will guard our hearts in Christ Jesus. And so, as we have these 
concerns, Lord, as we have these fiery darts that are being thrown at us in, in various places in our faith family, Lord, I, I lift them all up to you, Lord. We pray for Paul Canterbury tonight, and we pray for Cindy, Lord, that that you would correct what's going on in her heart with this stint, Lord, that you would make those things right, Lord, and that you would, you would set things right in her heart and in her life, Lord, and that this complication would be turned around, God, and that tomorrow would be a better day. Give them hope, Lord. Give them your peace, God. We pray for Jim. And I thank you for that brother, Lord. He's an encouragement in my life. And Lord, to have nine teeth removed is not not a small thing, Lord. So we pray for his pain. Uh, and uh, Lord, that you would help him to heal properly. I pray for my sister and my sister-in-law, God, that, that through medicine and, and through your hand even more, that they would be healed. God, that you would restore them to the life that you have for them, God, and that they would rise up and, and continue to serve you with all that they are, God. Pray your hand upon Joni and the situation with her mom and ask, God, your blessing upon um, her and, and, God, that you would open the door for um, the gospel to go forth in strength and in power, God. Continue to pray for Carla and, and Amy and Tim and Rebecca and Nathan and Deb, God, as they are the closest to the, the, the passing of, of Dave. And uh, you're, you would heal them in a, a, in a way that only you can, God. You know their sorrows and you, you experience their grief, God. And I ask, Lord, that you would comfort them in this hour. Draw them close to you. Lord, as we want Kindu home, Lord, every day that passes breaks our heart. We ask, Lord, that you would speed that along. We ask, Father, that you would push our paperwork through tomorrow. But in all these things, and even those things that are unmentioned, the hurts and the pains of grieving people, God, and in all those things, we say, not my will be done, but yours. For you're sovereign and you reign. And we trust you. And we will say, it is well. Even when the sorrows and sea billows roll, it is well. And even if, if, if this has been the best day of, of somebody's life here, I, I, I don't want to cast a gloomy shadow over everyone, God. When peace like a river attends my way, it is well. It is well. We ask, Father, your blessing over this time tonight. We ask, Father, that as we study your word, that you would draw us close to you. I pray, Father, that you would be with my words, that you would help me to rightly divide your, your scriptures, God, that I would not lead anyone to the left or to the right, and that we would leave this place knowing you more. Lord, I, I love this church. I love this. It's, it's more than a building, God. It's more than just people. We're a family, Lord, and, and I see that you're knitting us together in a, a strong way, and I'm so grateful for that, God. Uh, just continue to guide and direct us as only you can. We ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. Prayer is vital to our church. And so, uh, just as a reminder, a couple of announcements before we get started. We do have a prayer meeting for anybody that needs prayer. 7.30, Sunday mornings. What? 
Yeah, 7.30 Sunday mornings. We're here praying. And uh, it's, it's a good thing. I bring Reese with me every week, and the dude prays, man. It's awesome. And uh, he blesses me. And uh, um, uh, But, uh, yeah, it's, it's a, so if you need prayer, get your hiney out of bed and come see us at 7.30. <laughs> I'd love to see you then. So, huh? All right, that was the other thing. Friday night, we're showing a movie here, Monumental, by Kirk Cameron. Good, good historical documentary on the kind of the, the foundation, the pilgrims coming over and some of the struggles that they went through and some of the reasons that they actually came here, some of those things that are buried so deep in the history books that they aren't there anymore. But uh, And then um, it, it'll be good to kind of set, and then that sets up next Tuesday night for anybody that's interested going to see Unstoppable. Kathy, are those tickets still available? Okay. Kathy's the one putting that together if you're interested. And they're, what, 12 1250 to go see that. In case you hadn't heard about Unstoppable, first of all, go watch the preview. But the reason it's so expensive, 1250 for a movie, is they're doing it one night only. They're only showing it one night all across the country. Um, and so it's like you, you, just, you just grab a ticket and go, and it should be a good time. So um, we watched the preview last week for it, and uh, it looks really, really good. So that's next Tuesday night, okay? 1 Corinthians 5, yeah. All right, chapters 1 through 4, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. Corinth um, is a, a cultural city, a, a many different things, ebbing and flowing, people crossing paths all the time, bringing in all different kinds of religions, all different kinds of sin, and, and a, a cross, cross-cultural type area, very similar to Columbus, Ohio. We have all kinds of different people here. I think I quoted when we first started reading 1 Corinthians, there's some like 285 different languages spoken in Columbus. We're a very diverse city. It's a, a capital city. It's a high university city. There's a lot of different people here from a lot of different places. And so uh, with that, they bring a lot of different religions, a lot of different faiths, and a lot of frankly, sin. And so as Paul goes in and shares the gospel, establishes a church, they rise up and they they get seated on the foundation of what Paul said. I'm here to preach Christ and him crucified. And that's the foundation that Paul lays. And they they begin to build on that. And then 18 months later, he leaves. Apollo steps in and Apollo does a good job too. I don't want to downplay what Apollo did. He did a good job as their pastor too. And even Timothy came in and pastored. But the people of the church began looking at the outside world for their influence on how things were to be. And so Paul spends the first four chapters of this letter to them correcting their thinking. They say, he's like, you've gotten off on your thinking. You're you're chasing after the things of the world. Why would you bother doing that when the things of God are so much better? Why would you bother chasing after these things of the world? And, 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 and it's obvious why we do. It's obvious why they did, because the, the things of the world are shiny and pretty. And, and so it, it, our eyes like those things, and so we chase after them, and we're easily distracted by them. But Paul's saying, no, set your, let's get back to the foundation that Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Let's rebuild on that. Remember, he talked about you have a choice. You can build with wood, hay, and stubble, that would be the philosophies and the psychobabble of this world. 
You can build on that foundation with those things, or you can build on it with gold and silver and and precious jewels. And that would be the Word of God. And with prayer and with praise, you can build on the foundation that is Jesus Christ. And Paul's saying, this is what's going to last for eternity. These things are going to pass away. And so he, he, he wants to set their minds right, set their course right. So now in verse in chapter 5, he is going to take a turn, and he's, he's established now, first of all, you need to think right. Now he's going to start saying, and really for the next few chapters, now you need to act right. Now you need to, to these are the things that, now that we have your thinking clear, these are the things in your actions that we need to change. And basically, it's it's the idea that you know Proverbs twenty seven three would say, "As a man thinks, so he is." As you think, the 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 way you think, the direction you think, that affects your actions. Doesn't that make sense? So basically, garbage in, garbage out, right? And so Paul's saying, now that we've got your thinking clear, now we can look at correcting your actions and bringing those back onto base as well. So he tackles, you know, just a small one here in chapter 5. No, no big deal. Yeah, right. <laughs> Let's read. He says, 1 Corinthians 5, 1, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And sucks such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. Paul's like, all right, we're going to correct actions now. Let's start at the top. <laughs> we're taking the big one. I've gotten word is what he's saying. And it's not like it was a secret coming to me. This is something that everybody knows. It's actually reported. It's, it, this is common knowledge is what he's saying, that there's sexual immorality among you. Let's set this right. The word there in the Greek, word you're probably familiar with, pornea. That's what sexual immorality is. The Greek word is pornea, from which we get our word pornography, pornographic. And so... What that means, what the word translates is, is, is sexual immorality. Now, the initial meaning behind that word was simply, it simply at one point meant just to sleep with prostitutes. But Paul is expanding the definition. Paul is, is saying that any, any sexual activity outside the boundaries that God has laid in his word would become sexual immorality or pornea. And so he's saying, and, 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 and you've got this going on, church, is what he's saying. This is, this is happening in the church. It's reported among you. And then he goes on to say what it is. And hopefully at this point you're just like, ew. Because it's, it's reported that what is happening is not even named among the Gentiles. Not even the, the pagan dogs do this. It's reported that a man has his father's wife. Now that's like a man with his mom? No, not exactly. A man with his stepmom is what it is. And it isn't like just have like in a one night stand kind of have. This is like they're shacking together, living together. And and this is this is the the sin that they're in. And it, 
So this is not a one-time offense. It says that he has his father's wife. That would indicate that they are together. And that, and because he doesn't say he has his mother, that's why it's an indication that it's most likely his stepmother. And most commentators would believe that probably his father had died. But that's not, neither here nor there. It's not, not said. But inside their church, they have someone. And this isn't just... Uh, a non-believer, this isn't somebody, we're going to find out, this is a brother living carnally. Remember we talked about the three different type of people, the natural man, the spiritual man, and the carnal man. This is a brother, it says, living carnally, making a decision, coming into church and, 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 and flaunting this sin that he has a, his father's wife, Cicero, the historian, the, the Roman historian would say of this crime that it was an incredible crime and that it was practically unheard of. In the Roman culture, where anything goes, they're like, the one thing you don't do is you have relations with your stepmom. But here it is in the Corinthian church, and Paul's like, we're fixing this first and foremost. Now that we have your thinking right, let's tackle this issue. And it almost is like the church is proud of it. It's commonly known. It's, 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 it's actually reported that it's commonly known. Everybody knows that this is going on. He says in verse 2, And you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from you. And so the reaction of the church is, look how tolerant we are. Look at, look at what, a, what a loving group that we are, that we have this man among us, and though he's got his stepmom with him every day, and, and, and you know, we know that things are going on, we're, look how good we are. And Paul's like, you're puffed up over this whole issue, church. Rather, you should be mourning. And that's the, that's the proper reaction of us in church when we, or when we see a brother, when we see a sister fall into sin. We shouldn't be puffed up over that. We should mourn over that. That should break our hearts when, when somebody decides that the, the ways of the world, that, that sin is, is better than the ways of God. It should break our hearts. The sexual immorality that's happening here, that was the man's sin. And that needed to be dealt with, and Paul's going to deal with that specifically, but at the same time, he's also addressing the sin of the church. And the sin of the church was that they were puffed up over this. That they were like, look how good we are, look how, and I use that word intentionally, tolerant we are of this sin. I'm not fond of that word and what it means in today's society. Verse 3 says, For I indeed as absent in the body, but present in the Spirit, have already judged, as though I were present, him who has so done this deed. Paul says, I'm not there, but I, I'm going to act as though I were there, and I've already passed judgment on this guy. The, that he has committed a, 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 an atrocity, a sin, that, he, that needs to be corrected. He, Paul is saying, I'm not tolerant of sin. And remember what he said last chapter? Follow me as I follow Christ. 
That's what he said. He's like, uh, let me be your example. That's what he tells his church. And he says, uh, as I follow Christ, follow me. And, and so as Paul is saying now, I've laid judgment on this guy, and we're going to find out what that is. He's saying, church, don't be puffed up over over it. Rather mourn and, and, and pass a judgment. And I know it, if we were teaching this out in the public square today, what would you hear back if, if you said, Paul's already passed judgment on this? What would you hear back? Well, what does Matthew 7 say? Judge not, lest you be judged, right? That's the only scripture that pagans know. Because they want to throw it back in your face as you try to minister to them, as you try to share the gospel with them. Well, it says, don't judge me. Well, how about you read the rest of the chapter, dude? It says, don't make a hypocritical judgment is what it says. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, use the, the, the measure that you use on somebody else will be used on you as well. And so Paul is saying, don't be hypocritical in your judgment. Hold yourself to the same standard in which you judge others. And specifically, as we read this chapter, what it's going to say is that you judge the brethren with. That, that he, we, are, we, are, we are giving church discipline. We're, we're casting a judgment on a person. And what's, what's critical here, and we're going to see this, not so that this person would be condemned. Not so that we as a church can say, look what we've done. We've cast this person out. Not so that they could say, look how much better we are because we've gotten rid of this. But the hope is always restoration. The hope is always that the brother would repent and come back. Paul is willing to live according to the standard that he is using to judge this brother. He's saying, I, I won't live in sexual, sexual immorality. And so I, I can use this standard to cast this judgment. And then he says, in fact, he already has. And here is his judgment in verse 4. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So Paul says, this is what you need to do, church. He's making an authoritative decision, a judgment, and it's coming down, he's, he's flexing his apostle or apostolic muscle, and he's saying, this is what you need to do, church. We're going to, in the name of our Lord Jesus, when you've gathered together, and he says, along with my spirit, he's like, I I'm there with you. I, 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 you know, this is, as I've written this letter, this is an extension of me. Just so we understand, in, this, in like the 70s and 60s when astrophysics was going on and all that kind of stuff, people actually use the scripture to say, see, Paul used to use astrophysics. He was actually there. Right? Along with my spirit, I'm there. And that's not what he's saying at all. We're not into, you know, whatever all that weird stuff is. I don't even know about it. But he's just saying, you've got my letter. My letter is an extension of me. I've written this out. So as I am there with my spirit. But what I like about Paul is he's, yes, he's flexing his muscle here and he's showing his authority. But he, even in that, subjects himself to the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says it in verse 4, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's like, 
yes, I'm bringing this judgment, but it's not with my strength. It's not with my power. This is under the authority of Jesus Christ. This is what he would say over this man's life. And what does he say to do? Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. What's that look like? Uh, Satan's delivery service. Yes, I have one to pick up, please. <laughs> Deliver one. I mean, in 30 minutes or less, he's, or, or else he's free. Is that what, I mean, how, how, what's that look like? Deliver one to Satan. Well, what Paul is saying is, kick him out of the fellowship. Boot, boot him out of church. Church, church discipline. And he's saying, set, the, set him outside the circle of fellowship. Send him back to the ways of the world. Allow him to wallow in his sin for the purpose of the destruction of the flesh. The hope is that when he is kicked out of church, when he's kicked out of the fellowship, as he sits out in the circle, his heart would start to break and he'd miss what was going on inside the circle and he would feel brokenhearted over what he had done and his eyes would be open to the, the mistake that he has made, the error of his way, and in that, his flesh would be destroyed so that his spirit may be saved. You see? See Paul's heart in all of this? It's not just to condemn this man. It's not just to clean up the church and make it look pretty. It's for the intent and the purpose of redeeming this person. His hope is that, that through this excommunication, through this setting outside, that his eyes would be open to what he has lost. I said the word excommunication, and some of you are like, well, that rings some bells, maybe if you've come from a Catholic background. One thing I want to make sure we understand is Paul is not saying we're removing his salvation. In the Catholic Church, if you're excommunicated, that's what they believe. It's not just that you're kicked out of church, it's that you're no longer saved. Paul's not saying that at all, because he continues to call him a brother but in the hopes that his, his flesh would be destroyed. It's not really that he wants him to suffer. It's, it's the hope that in his suffering, he would return to the Lord. We homeschool our kids, and uh, we go to a, a convention every year, and uh, I forget who said it um, a few years ago, uh, probably one of the greatest things that impacted me as far as us teaching our kids. And it was just a simple little sentence. And it doesn't, you don't have to necessarily use this on homeschooling. Anybody can use it as they're raising kids. It's simply let reality be their teacher. And so the example that they gave is if you have to get somebody up for school, and, and this, was, this was even in a public school setting or what have you, if... if um, you have to get somebody up for school, and they refuse to get up for school, and then they end up missing the bus. Well, let reality be their teacher and say, now what are you going to do? You miss the bus. Start walking. Or you pay for the gas while I drive you there. Or you go talk to the principal and tell him why you're late. Or any experience 
it's our natural instinct to, to, especially moms, to, to shelter and to hover. But at some point, you, you pull your hands back a little bit you, you, and you let life kind of direct them. And as, as they continue to make the same mistake, you just, you just say, all right, you know, this is the, the road you want to take. Let reality be their teacher. And, and that's what Paul is saying here. It's just like, let, let's set them outside the fellowship. Maybe in that he will open his eyes to how bad things are. And that's a great question. And the, the question that comes to my mind is, is, is our fellowship, is, as we look at our environments and the things that we do here, the faith family that we have, the, the love that we have going on here, if we were to kick somebody out because of the sexual sin that they were in, would they miss it? Would it be impactful? Would it be effective? And I think in our church it would, but in so many churches of today, if somebody were kicked out of a church, they would just simply go to the next one down the road. That's no big deal. But as you create that family, as you create that fellowship, then when somebody doesn't have it, they're going to see what they're missing. Does that make sense? And so that's what Paul's hope is. Now he's going to correct the church. He corrects the man to set him outside the fellowship, turn him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Now in verse 6, he says, let's deal with the sin that you've committed, church. You're, you're being puffed up. He says it flat out. Your glorying is not good. <laughs> He's like, stop it. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? So he's like, all right, church, your mistake is that you've gloried in this, that you've been puffed up over this, that you gloried in your tolerance of this man rather than... And, let me take that back. And not in the tolerance of the man. You gloried in the tolerance of sin. Look how tolerant we are. We let this man continue to live in his sin. And my question is that when we look at a situation like that, is that truly loving? Is it loving to let somebody continue to wallow in their sin when you know it's wrong? I don't think that's loving at all. In the name of tolerance, letting somebody continue down a path that they shouldn't be going down, that's, that's not loving. And so Paul's saying, don't glory in that. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens a whole lump? Well, what's that mean? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> no, I do. <laughs> It's the idea of bread in those days, you know, as you, as you created bread, you, you, or I guess you still do it today, as you, you, you put yeast into the bread, right, to make the bread rise. I'm like very much out of my comfort zone here. I really don't know what it takes to make bread. But I know somebody that does. My wife is a bread maker. She, she's, you know, she got into it for a number of years. She used to grind her own flour, and so she understands. And so I called her as I was preparing yesterday. I said, so tell me about this bread making stuff. How's this all go? And she says, it's the idea, the, the idea of leaven that you take the, uh, a rancid part of bread, uh, 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 what's that? Of dough, rather, not bread, dough, thank you. And, and you place it into the lump. And, and then the, the chemical reaction that happens in that is it, you know, creates these gas bubbles, and that's what causes your bread to rise. All in all, it's kind of gross, if you ask me, but that's the idea behind it all. It wasn't like they, you know, would go down to the store and buy this dry yeast, and then they would mix it up, and all this stuff would happen. They actually had to let dough 
grow rancid to, fer to ferment, right? Well, but it's 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 a rotting process, right? It is, and, and that's what's happening. And so, and and, and then, and so what he's saying is, you don't put a whole bunch of that into the lump of dough. You put a little in, and it permeates throughout the whole dough. And so a little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump. And so he's saying a little bit of sin, anytime we read about leaven in the scriptures, it's always referring to sin, okay? A little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump. As you tolerate, quote-unquote, tolerate this in your church, then it's easy for you to step down that path as well. It's easy for somebody else to. And so he's saying don't let that set that leaven outside, and that's what he's going to talk about here in the next few verses. Verse 7, therefore, purge out the old leaven. Get rid of that sin that you may be a new lump. Ladies, what do you think? Maybe you should call your group that. <laughs> Hi, we're the new lumps. <laughs> no? Russell, Russell and I agree. We're in agreement, therefore it is. <laughs> Yeah, right. <laughs> and the women of the church say, uh-uh. <laughs> Maybe a band name? Ladies and gentlemen, the new lumps! I don't know. The men's group. <laughs> All right, let's just, let's not go down that path. I've decided. All right, therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, fresh, since you are truly unleavened. Love that. Since you are, there's a truth for us there. Since you are truly unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. He's telling you a truth there. He's telling us the truth there. You are unleavened. Christ has made you holy. Christ has made you pure. Christ has removed the old leaven. You are a new lump is what he's saying. Therefore, don't let the old leaven in. Set it outside. And he reminds us how that came about, the gospel. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. You're familiar? Yes, the Passover lamb. In Exodus, as they're coming out, they would prepare a meal in haste. And in that preparation of the meal, they would make a bread in that meal that did not, they didn't have time for it to rise. It was a hastily made meal as they were trying to exit out of um, Egypt because the Passover. The, the death angel had passed over their houses, had taken the sons of each of the Egyptian families, the firstborn sons. And so Pharaoh finally says, go, get out. And as they go out, they were to prepare a meal. And in that meal, they would have the Passover lamb, uh, a sacrifice, but also they would have this unleavened bread. They didn't have time for it to rise, and so they, they would just make it essentially a flat cake and, and, and eat that. And what he's saying is, and, and, and the, I, I, can't, I don't have time to go into the intricacies of it tonight, but as Jesus was crucified on, on Passover, 
He becomes our Passover lamb. And in that, we, we celebrate communion with the bread, the broken body, unleavened, without sin. And, and then as we accept Christ, as Christ becomes um, in our hearts, as, as, or in our lives rather, that's what chapter 2 talked about, then we become unleavened, sin removed. Beautiful truth in that verse 7. A new lump. Purge out the old leaven. He's telling the church, don't glory in your tolerance of sin. Rather, purge these things out. Be pure as Christ is pure. Because Christ dwells in you. Verse 8, Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So he's saying, we've got the foundation, remember? Christ and Him crucified. And we're getting back to that. The unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. We're going to build upon that foundation, that truth. And we want to use those things that are going to last the test of time. The, the gold, the silver, and the precious stones. And then he clarifies, just so we all understand as we're dealing with sexual immorality in the church, he says in verse 9, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. So that's interesting because we're reading what? 1 Corinthians? And Paul's saying, I've already written a letter to you. We don't have that letter. Interesting. It'd be interesting to see what it says. I wrote to you in my epistle. I've already written to you. So there was another 1 1 Corinthians. This isn't the 1 Corinthians, but it is the 1 Corinthians of the Bible. Understand that not everything that Paul wrote was inspired of God, and that's why he didn't make it into the Holy Scriptures, but this letter was, and so that's why they call it 1 Corinthians. But Paul is saying, I've already written another letter. Does that make sense? Not everything that Paul wrote was inspired of God. But what was inspired of God that Paul wrote is in the Bible. Does that make sense? You with me? So when Paul writes a grocery list, that's not inspired of God, and that's why it's not in the Bible. When Paul writes an epistle like this letter, it has the truth, but it, it wasn't inspired of God. And so it's not in the Scriptures. But he's saying in that epistle, in that letter, he was still speaking the truth, he was still telling the truth, but for some reason, as God ordained the 66 books, he said we don't need that epistle. But in that letter, he said, don't keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet, he says in verse 10, I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. So Paul is clarifying for us here. He's saying, I did say don't hang out, don't keep company with sexually immoral people, but I didn't mean with sexually immoral people of this world. What are you talking about, Paul? Well, he's saying, he's not going after, hey, church, be monastic in your lifestyle where you withdraw everything. Oh, that person's sexually immoral? I guess I can't give him my order. Oh, that, that lady at the grocery store, she's covetous? She can't check out my groceries anymore. Paul isn't saying withdraw from society entirely. He's saying 
yes, keep away from sexually immoral people, but not sexually immoral people of the world. Those that don't know any better is what he's saying. He's going to go on to say, people that are sexually immoral inside the church, those are the people you don't hang out with. Paul's not endorsing a monastic lifestyle where we just pull ourselves back from the world. Because he says, if you were to keep from all these people, the sexually immoral, the covenants, the extortioners, the idolaters, you'd need to go out of the world because they're everywhere. It's a good question for us. As we live our lives, yes, we are the church. My question is, who are you interacting with? Who are the people you're dealing with? Do you have non-Christian friends? Because we should. We, we, we should know and interact with people, with their families, and we should understand that they're in the world. They're sexually immoral, or they're covetous, or they're extortioners, or they're idolaters. And we should be willing to be a light to them. <laughs> That's what we've been called to. Matthew 28. That's what we do. That's what the, the quote I read at the end of Sunday. It's not that we need our light brighter. It's that we need to go to where it's darker. We need to, we need to share that. He's, Paul's saying, don't pull yourself out of the world. Scripture would say, be, you're familiar with this, be in the world but not of the world, right? So we're, we're called to be in the world. He's, he's not endorsing monasticism here. He says in verse 11, but now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not to even eat with such a person. So he's saying, and he's clarifying here, you got a brother, you got somebody, a brother that's living carnally, making poor choices and deciding to live in one of these sins, you don't have anything to do with him. You don't, you don't fellowship with him. You don't eat with him because he's chosen to live after his sin rather than repent and follow the ways of God. Again, not so that you can lord it over and say, I don't have anything to do with you. Get away from me. Off to Satan you go. But the hope is for restoration. That if I pull myself away from you, and that you, as you, that, or as, as, that, as my brother is in sexual sin, if I pull myself away from him and say, Dude, I, 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 you've made your choice. You've made your bed, lay in it. I, I can't have anything to do with you. The hope would be that they're brokenhearted over that. That the, the relationship broken would be so grievous to them that in that they would repent. He goes on to say, For what have I to do with judging those who are... are sorry. For what have I to do with judging those also who are outside... Do you not judge those who are inside? He's talking about church discipline, the things that need to happen within the church. But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourself the evil person. And so this entire chapter really is dealing with one issue, this man who had taken his wife, or his rather his, his stepmother as his wife, and he's saying we need to deal with the sin of this man, but we also need to deal with the sin of the church. The goal of Paul here, the end goal of all of this chapter is that Paul is that the Corinthian church would be healthy. That, that, he would, that he would have healthy sheep as he is the shepherd. 
His hope is that as he kicks the man out that is, is sleeping with his stepmother, as, as they kick them out of church, his hope is that he would become healthy, he would repent and return. That he would, he would give up his sin lifestyle, he would recognize the error of his way, and that he would come back and create a healthy sheep there. And as also as he corrects the church then, as he disciplines them not to be puffed up in their tolerance of that sin, his hope is that they would become healthy in that as well. They would be unleavened. I think a lot of what happens today in churches is that the end goal is not healthy sheep. The end goal of churches is numbers. And if we have more people, or if we have more dollars, then that's all that matters. But that's, that would explain then in this day and age why so many churches lack in church discipline. And it's, it's part of a three-legged stool. It's, it's, it's an, a necessity that we have in church that, that as, as sheep go wayward, as, as we go wayward, that there's lines or there, there's, there's ways to correct. There's things that we, we can do to say, brother, you're, you're, you're in sin. As you read through Matthew chapter 18, Jesus gives a specific order in the way that we discipline a brother. That, that you go and talk to him in hopes that they would repent. And if they don't, then you take her two or three brothers with you and the three or four of you go and you try to bring him back. And if that doesn't work, then you bring him before the church and say, this brother has made a choice to live in sin. And so we need to send him away from us in hopes that he would return. But then you don't just, you don't just live in that. You, you pray for that brother in hopes that they might return to you. That's all in Matthew chapter 18. But far too often, if, if the end goal of a church is we need more people, why bother correcting anybody in their sin? Because then you lose them. Because most often they're just going to go down to the church to, down the road. Or if the end goal is, is dollars, then if somebody's not in your church, then they're not giving money. But if your end goal is healthy sheep, then when you see somebody breaking their leg, you help them set it in hopes that they would restore, be restored. Does it make sense? So that's what chapter 5 is about. Chapter 6, chapter 7 are going to continue in those themes, different ideas. But the goal is healthy sheep. That's what Paul wants. As he sets their minds right, now he's setting their actions right in hopes that they would mature in the Lord. So that's where we're going. Make sense? All right, let's stand. Let's close in prayer. God, I thank you that by your word, um, you set our action. You set our course. Jesus, I thank you that in you we are pure and holy. Unleavened, as you said here. I pray that we would live our lives holy and pleasing to you, God. And that the end goal of our life would be to bless and to glorify the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And that we would be willing to be um, vulnerable enough to let brothers and sisters speak into our lives that if they see sin, we can be approached about that, that we might repent. 
Father God, help us to be healthy sheep, that we might bring you glory all of our days. In Jesus' name, amen.